Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. And I'm Joel Morris. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works. Or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the wonderful Helen Monks. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. Hello, Hello. Helen. It's nice to have you in. We've just caught you before you have to go and do loads of rehearsals and things. Yes, I'm about you to, in. yeah. A very popular in-demand woman, you know. <laughs> is this your West End debut? It is, it wow. is. I'm so scared. This is for the stage version of Upstart Crow. Correct. There are big posters up for it at the moment. Correct. Big posters with David Mitchell's face on it. Who not t- yours. Not not yet. Oh. I'm going to go over with a big, uh, what's it called, PVA glue stick yeah. and stick my own face you over will, it. You will get photos of yourself on by the doors of the theatre. No. Because they, they take photos of dress rehearsals. Do they? they? Oh, yeah, and then they don't. stick them on the doors. That's really good to know because I always do this where I forget that and then I just look like I've rolled out of bed because I've normally rolled out of bed <laughs> when the photographer comes in and all the photos. Fo- because I think they're the kind of things you'll look back when you're 80 and go, oh, I did that. And all of the photos of me look like my face has been mushed. <laughs> <laughs> so good tip. I might yes. I might wash that morning. <laughs> Come in, brush your hair. Wear wear trousers. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. In and Clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> moustache, special moustache. Oh, let yeah. it grow out. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Treat myself. But it's one of those things that I think people forget is that when you're in the public eye in any kind of way, is that other people have prepared and they know what's going on. They turn up. They do it for those talking head interview shows and things. And I had a friend who was a journalist. And she said, I always look dreadful on these. And I went. Do you wear makeup? She went, no. Went, you know everyone else is in six inches of slap, even the men. Yeah, she yeah. always used to refuse ma- makeup attention before she was. She said, oh, I'm just a talking head. I'm just a journalist. And they went, no, 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 you've got to compete. Level playing field. Yeah. Loads of slap. 
Yeah, it's like I used to go in my youth um, to the club when I was about 18 and all of my friends would wear high stiletto heels and I absolutely refused to wear them. <laughs> but it just meant in all of the pictures, I look about six feet shorter than everybody else. <laughs> hey, they took a Warwick Davis out for the night. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just, like you say, you've just got to match everybody else. That's it. The weirdest one I ever saw was a friend's getting married and uh, Claudia Winkleman was one of the guests at the wedding and she turned up and she was filming Strictly Come Dancing at the same time. And she turned up and she was a completely different colour than everyone else in the church. <laughs> she was the colour of, of our logo. She was a bright orange. And on screen, she looks normally yeah, like a normal person. But it's because yeah. all the dancers around her are sort of tangerine coloured. Yeah, it's true. When I was filming recently and I also had rehearsals for something in the evening and I would not have time to wipe my face in between the two and I would feel incredibly self-conscious walking in the room because it just you just look stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you look dumb. <laughs> no offence to my amazing makeup woman. <laughs> I've done that before. We've, we've sort of had to do something where either a photo or, or like an interview or something we've had makeup on. And I, as a man, I leave mine on for the rest of the day. because oh, I, really? I just look amazing. And I will never look that good again. All it is is usually <laughs> foundation. It takes some of the, some of the glare off your off your forehead yeah. but I, I have it on for the rest of the day so that I can look a bit amazing and when someone says are you wearing makeup I'm like oh I was just it was just a thing and that's you like, should just wear makeup every day and every day say oh I've just been doing a thing why not is that how it started with Bowie is that how Kiss started <laughs> oh we're just doing oh, a just thing just doing a music video <laughs> <laughs> I think if it makes you look amazing slap it on <laughs> if you've got it flaunt it it's just a bit of foundation isn't it <laughs> yeah they're just, they're just naturally those colours <laughs> I wish that was true this brings out my natural inner demon <laughs> <laughs> we've been talking obviously because uh, obviously you do loads of comedy and you're brilliant we've been mainly talking about bowling alleys before yeah we come I don't in. know how we got onto that we but had a very in-depth chat about bowling alleys yeah they're sort of this weird existential thing aren't they where if you're not in a good headspace they make me just think endlessly about my own mortality <laughs> why are we throwing a ball at a load of things is heaven going to be like a bowling alley <laughs> is, it, is it like is it a glimpse of the god beyond? I hope not because they're weird they're, they're sort of other places I don't go to bowling alleys often enough because I like bowling and I keep going I should go there but then when I go there, I always sort of wander in. It's that strange 1960s decor and the yeah. low lighting and the fact that it's always midnight in a bowling alley, <laughs> even at 11 in the morning. And, and you can do it. And I was suspected that you could probably kill someone in a bowling alley and the law wouldn't apply to yeah, you. Yeah, for it's out, sure. It's outside territorial waters. You can do anything in there. They probably have different currency. I don't know. They maybe, do. They legit do. You have to get tokens they? and stuff, don't yeah. you? Maybe that's why it feels like Because I love, I, I grew up, I loved amusement arcades and things like that. I've always felt happy in an amusement mm. arcade. But I sort of wander into them now and go, these are weird places. <laughs> and you were sort of saying about Vegas being like, like the biggest oh, bowling alley in the my world. my gosh. I'm so desperate to go to Vegas because I think, like you say, you'd lose sense of time and culture and country and identity. I would just spend all of my money, though, and then max out my credit card, probably. Because you'd feel it wasn't real. It had no consequences. Yeah, completely. It's like, yeah, it's like going to a fun fair or something, isn't it, where you just end up accidentally spending yeah. millions of pounds. <laughs> there are places and times where you forget... I mean, maybe that's part of it. You forget the outside world and you forget that you've got duties and things. There are, there are places where you'll spend too much money, like the first day of holiday or at a wedding or something, where something's different and you go, oh, it costs 40 quid to get the cab here, but it doesn't matter because it's wedding day. Yeah, you're so right. And you don't count. Maybe that's the idea. That's why Vegas and well, bowling alleys in those places feel so odd. But that's because, interesting because that's stopping you from thinking about, I don't know, why does it make me so existential then if it, the whole point of it is it's taking you out of your life? 
why do I spend my whole time thinking we're all going to die? You're, it's too good to be true. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it, this can't be real. This is a trick. It is. Actually, they do look a little bit like a computer simulation. Yeah. Because the neon's a bit bright and everything's a bit too simple and geometric, like Lawnmower Man, like simple <laughs> CGI. <laughs> you could make a bowling alley very easily on a computer. Maybe it's not, it's a Matrix thing that you go. Is this real? It's too good to be true. And every, you're so right. And everybody's slightly in this weird hypnotic state, aren't they? Of going just going with it and if you make a choice not to go because I was at yeah. Winter I don't know if you've been to Winter Wonderland you go don't you I've been I've once been, and I yeah. ran away I was too oh scared but I get scared God. in places like this it's the best <laughs> I had no idea it was the best but there were the guys doing the um, oh my god what are they called they're like grown up teapots the uh, spinny oh, things spaltzers yeah and I suddenly had this out-of-body thing where I thought, oh, my God, if I was them and you're just constantly surrounded by people who are having a really unique, one-off experience of joy, but for you it's your everyday spinning the waltzers. Oh, my God. And then I got on the waltzers and, oh, my God, those men want everybody to die. They just spin <laughs> them like they're trying to kill you. My head was literally... I thought my <laughs> neck was going to snap off. And it proved my point. That was right, that they're sort of in a different headspace to yeah. everybody. I find anyone in those, those situations, one of the things that's really odd about a midwife, if, if I'm oh, a wife saying when giving birth, yeah. is, is that for you this is this one-off unique situation, but it's just their job. Have you read Adam Kay's book, This Is Going To Hurt? He talks about being in a supermarket and he's at the, I think it's like the meat counter or something, and this woman going, oh my God, it's you, because for her, he delivered her baby and that was the most special day wow. of her life. And he could not remember anything. And she went into all the detail of the yeah. very specific birth and he just, nothing triggered his memory of it and he felt like a bit of a sociopath. But you must just become... Well, there are people, I would find, find it amazing when a teacher remembers you because you go, you had oh, millions yeah, of me. Yeah. Why do you, that's always really touching. But it's teachers, pilots... You know, that every time I get on a plane, I go, this is impossible. And all the cabin staff are just going, oh, I do this all the time. Yeah, like, but you're, you're in right. the air, this is impossible. <laughs> and, and waltzer operators but and people you, in bowling But I wonder if do you feel that way about comedy? Maybe people think that way about comedy of, oh, my God, imagine working on something that's then on the telly or is a film well, we, on stage. Well, we've talked about this because you keep things, you keep scripts better than I do. And I keep reminding myself that if I were not me, if I were not writing the scripts and things or, or working mm. on things... I think those scripts were special because mm. if I found out that I don't know there were some Fry and Laurie scripts or some Monty Python scripts, I'd go, oh, I'd love to touch those. Whereas I don't think the ones we work on are special at all. Because I'd go, well, I, that was just a job. It's just a piece of paper. But yeah. actually, for a fan of that show, they'd go. Someone, someone asked for some scripts we'd written recently, and I went, oh, oh, god, they are. Oh, that's something I used to as a fan like. Yeah. But I've stopped seeing it that way completely. You're much you better go. at fetishizing objects than I am. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I've just got too much stuff, haven't I? You know, that's all it is. <laughs> too many things. I went, I went down to a, my, I've got a lock-up. Um, it's, it's, it makes me sound like someone out of Minder. Um, it's, it's not, it's just, you know, one of those storage places. I've got a little tiny storage unit. And I went down there to chuck some, to go through some things, and I, I realised that there were eight boxes of books that I hadn't looked at for 12 years. Whoa. And I thought, these can definitely go to Oxfam. Did you do the thing that I do with that, though, and go through them and go, except this one? I pulled... There was one I pulled out. <laughs> I haven't looked at this in 12 years, but this one's important. I pulled out one book and went, actually, no, I'm not giving that away. I want to read that again. And it was Clive James's Unreliable Memoirs. Oh. And it, the day after he died. No. That's really amazing. Oh. So you would have regretted that. I would, yeah, I would really have regretted that because I'd have gone, where's that copy of Unreliable Memoirs? Oh, I just took it to Oxfam. Mind, mind you, I did think um, 
the great thing about it, of course, is that if I had given it away, I could go and buy it from Oxfam. And give money to charity. And yeah. money would have gone to charity as well. It's a, that's always a good thing. I yeah. love the idea of someone, a, a do-gooder, just taking all their things to Oxfam and then rebuying them. <laughs> <laughs> like it's their sort of weekend hobby. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I live in Wimbledon at the moment, um, and the charity shops there are so obscene because I think it's probably quite a good thing because they recognise that people there are incredibly wealthy so yeah. they can make more money. But for me wanting to genuinely buy my clothes from charity shops like there was a coat in there the other day for a hundred pounds it was wow. in Oxfam and it was a hundred pounds but you feel this really odd double feeling with that whenever yeah. I see because Oxfam got better at pricing things properly they, they just got some people in who knew that I don't know if you put a vinyl copy of a Beatles record in there it wasn't worth one pound fifty they could probably get a <laughs> damn those for it. guys yeah they worked out and you, and you go oh damn you making money for the poor <laughs> I know it's very confusing yeah, it's okay, you should be annoyed but I, 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 that's the thing though often really nice clothes because they're brought in by the very wealthy people but then yeah. they're also bought by the very wealthy people <laughs> when I used to do the arches just thinking of scripts being special um, I had that where I did just used to put them in the recycling all of the scripts because you'd record like six episodes yeah. a day or something and um, I didn't realise that people other people in the company were getting everybody to sign them and then auctioning them off for loads of money yeah. and, and one actor and, and then giving it to charity and one actor had made like a proper sort of business out of it but then one day he got confused and he sold a script that hadn't been aired yet and it happened to be a script Whoa. with a really big storyline in it and he also happened to auction it to this guy who ran a pub who then decided to do the script as a reading in his local pub and in that local pub happened to be a journalist who then <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> it's a whole film I know, he was I know. only trying to do good I know. oh dear it's a perfect storm of shit what, did, did, was there then did a rule come down saying you can't do this yeah, anymore yeah. Oh. No. Well, we were able to do it, but I think you had to sort of have you had to sort of run it past people yeah. and have yeah. special make everyone aware that you were you couldn't just do a back door script well, selling. That charity thing where people sort of ask for something, usually it's something that's worthless to you. And it becomes totally. and it reveals that it becomes worth worth it to someone else. We did a charity uh, auction a while ago now. Uh, and we just asked everyone we knew in telly and things. So have you got anything left over lying around? And people gave the most amazing thing. My house was full of the most amazing things wow. that were lying around people's houses they thought were worthless. And suddenly you went, oh, they're magic. We had all the loads of props from, from Dead Set, the Charlie Brooker thing. I had the rocket launcher from Four Lions. Whoa. Chris Morris said, do you want a rocket launcher? I went, what? Yeah. I've got a lovely picture of me with a rocket launcher oh in my, my lounge. Oh, my God. Is that still available for sale? I think someone, so a fan bought it, but there's some amazing wow. stuff. The sweetest one was Paul King, the director of Paddington, uh, gave us a, a prop from Bunny and the Bull, his film with Simon Farnaby in it. And it was a beautiful uh, miniature of a, of a Swiss chalet. And it was huge. And wow. I put it on top of our wardrobe for a bit. And then it got bought. Someone... Spent, put some money in for the charity for cancer and they bought it and then there was a knock on the door one day they said come around and collect it and it was Paul and he said I wonder where that prop had gone I really really wanted it and I saw it on, on the web and thought I'll go I'll go. I didn't realise it was you and he came Aww. around and took his own prop home oh my gosh that's so sweet and he'd sort of given 400 quid to charity it's for like it it's like the charity shop thing all totally. over again if you the... give it goes round wow um, Bunty um... Malone you give a little bit and it all comes back Aww. to you oh, that RPG launcher by the way um, <laughs> when um, when Chris went to film the uh, is it the Afghanistan or Pakistan sequences are filmed in Spain yeah and when he went out to Spain um, Customs said, can we have a look in these boxes, please? <laughs> oh, 
my so God. And so out came this RPG launcher and they went, <laughs> and what exactly the fuck is this? And Chris explained, he said, it's a prop for a film, you know, so it doesn't actually fire anything. Whoa. And then there was just, and he, he said it took ages because everybody working in customs wanted to be photographed with it on their shoulder. <laughs> it is a very cool thing. Have you, ever, have you ever done any filming where guns have turned up? No. You, you haven't God, done the kind amazing. of thing... I don't it's, think it's, so. It's the, when the armourer turns up, and weirdly everyone goes, oh, it's obviously very serious and guns, gun crime's a really big issue. Everyone wants to play with them. Yeah, everyone. what is that about? It's just, it's playground stuff. But when they turn up and the armourer takes them very seriously, we'll return to the box between <laughs> shots. Because obviously you could rob a bank with one, I suppose, is the understanding. Even though morally you know it's evil, there's something about holding, yeah. It feels sort of dangerous and odd because they're, they're big and they're heavy and they're real. And every part of you goes, I suppose it's growing up watching I was going to say, I blame movies James for Bond it. and things. You always want to have your gun. Yeah. All that gesturing. and it, There's Yippee-ki-yay. a fetishisation of it, isn't there? But it's, everyone becomes like a seven-year-old kid <laughs> when the guns turn up. It's pathetic. That's so good. There's real... There's real um... There's real routines, though, around having the armour. Um, a friend of mine was in a show in Broadway um, and there was a gun in the show and he said that there was this routine that had to be had to be done exactly the same way every night where the armourer would go and unlock the gun from whichever cabinet it was in, take it over to the actor who was going to use it, mm. open the barrel to show him that there was nothing in there because wow. it just fired blanks, obviously, close the barrel, hand it to him and then stand there and he would... It had to stand in the wings while the actor went on and the point at which the actor fired the gun and then when the actor came off, he had to hand it straight back to the armourer and the armourer wasn't allowed to move from that Whoa. spot because they take it so seriously. But, you know, if you wanted to kill somebody, that is how you could do it. If that armourer wasn't there, slip yeah. a cheeky bullet in before they... Also, oh, psychologically, yeah. I just I just filmed something the where I had to... disgruntled armourer. <laughs> <laughs> I just filmed something where I had to give somebody CPR and with a real CPR machine in a real oh, wow. hospital. So they obviously unplugged it, but in the <laughs> in the scene, I had to plug it into a live plug socket. But they changed the CPR machine so that it didn't fire anything. But wow. honestly, the fear of accidentally <laughs> electrocuting my fellow actor was in like it was. I really, really relied on that medical expert being there and going, "I promise you are not <laughs> going to kill anybody. I promise." It's one of the things that, that doesn't occur to you when you watch something is how much effort goes into making normal... You appreciate, like, a, a superhero can't fly and there must be special effects involved. But it's when someone, like, I don't know, turns their phone light on in a scene yeah. and you realise the amount of work that goes into making that yeah. light come out of a phone. It's the boring stuff that's, oh a, that's incredibly gosh. complicated. The detail of it and the amount of respect I have for people who work in props um, and set decoration as well because the amount of detail but the thing that thing that I just worked on as well the props department got their van stolen halfway through yeah filming and it was one of those slightly cursed projects where lots of things (laughs) just went wrong and um, it was all the continuity props of all of the things we'd already shot but still had scenes coming up to shoot with but then it then turned up but it got they impounded it but they wouldn't tell us whether or not the things within the van had been taken or not (laughs) so there were like these two days of just like oh my god and in the meantime them having to source all of these things that looked identical but there were some things that were you know irreplaceable like a random vintage jar that somebody had found well, in it yeah, they do charity shops yeah. the ways, all your props people always end up scouring charity shops yeah, so a lot totally. of the props are unique then. yeah exactly which I, w- I now realise is madness like we should paper mache everything and get doubles of everything on, on this sh- show as well they also the props I don't know what happened they were just filming 
something really quickly and they had and it's a the props who normally come in and just check everything's okay before you say action weren't able to come on set because it was a really quick turnaround and there was this thousand pound guitar that was being filmed in one scene and then in that same scene the person playing the guitar smashed the guitar to bits so right. obviously they had a double for that but they oh, didn't come no, in and don't. check and yeah and the, oh. they went action and oh. the actor smashed to bits the thousand pound guitar again that needed to be in the next <laughs> scene because the next scene we were filming was the was the previous scene so bless props man they deserve a BAFTA and this for... is why films are so expensive <laughs> it's, just, it's that it's the smashing things up I know I was thinking god the world's burning around us and here we are smashing to bits a thousand pound guitar oh well but entertainment is so important it is so important I find, I find piano abuse really upsetting <laughs> yeah, if, I, if anyone drops a piano in a film or something or you oh know my I just god. oh god it upsets me so much so you don't, don't like do Laurel and Hardy well, I love Laurel and Hardy but I really str- I really don't like their attitude to piano <laughs> <laughs> Smash the stuff. But in, in comedy, there is a really fine line between stressful and funny. I find that with yeah. Faulty Towers, where I'm laughing and then actually, no, this is now really serious <laughs> and this is really not okay, and they're going to get caught and it's all going to go wrong, and then you're laughing again, and then no, they're smashing up the piano. I've got, fr- got a friend whose dad couldn't watch Faulty Towers. He's yeah. a huge comedy fan, but he found it so stressful yeah, to watch. Yeah, I completely relate. I have to be in the right headspace because if I'm in the middle of doing something that involves me organising something and I watch Faulty Towers, it's too real <laughs> it's too real I remember going to see Lord of the Rings when I was too young for my brother's old, my older brother's birthday party and I was so unbelievably scared that I was just shaking in my seat and my mum picked up her huge coat and just put her coat over me and I just oh. sat under her coat for the whole film like a parrot <laughs> at night with a blanket <laughs> yeah, over it was, it was great it really helped so now I think Lord of the Rings is like very loud that's my kind of experience of it I don't really remember what happened but, but talking of strange Stressful comedy. Oh yes. Oh yes. Um, will you tell? This. Will you tell us what you've brought in? Yes, I have picked. Oh my god, I was about to say Nicola Murray. That's. that's I think that's a very good way of doing this. I think you have picked Nicola Murray. I've picked Nicola Murray from the thick of it, um, particularly the episode where she is forced by Malcolm Tucker to resign. This is an emergency situation, Nicola. You have to break the glass and hit the dead tickle button. No, I don't want to do that. What don't you want to do? Bash the tickle button. You need to talk to Sky. You need to call for an inquiry. No. I really think this could massively backfire. Is this tickle? That could be good. Shh. I cannot talk when I'm talking. You're on the ropes, Nicola. You have to do something fucking drastic. I don't even know how to refer to him. Do I, do I call it Mr Tickle? I can't call it Mr Tickle. I'm stuck on a train. I know I'm stuck on a train. Attack, 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 and do it before Ben's resignation. Fine, yes, fine, fine, good. Thank you, Malcolm. There's something about her, there's something about the comedy being so unbelievably truthful and so relatable. She's just kind of every woman, I think. She's just a very, very normal person put in this really, really extreme situation that's, that we also all understand because it's politics and it's the leader of the opposition and it's something that we all see and understand but suddenly slightly having the curtain lifted and seeing her behind it actually just being like any of us would be in that situation yeah, yeah. it's just unbelievably funny but on to more serious matters Mr Tickle is dead what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm not going to exploit a suicide come on you can't look a gift corpse in the mouth you should be taking that corpse and slapping the government about the face with it but a slap with Tickle yeah no I'm not doing it. It's insensitive, as was that. 
it's brilliant casting, and it's Rebecca Front. She's brought oh, she's in. So good. She's brought in for the series when it goes from BBC Four to BBC Two. So it's, it's stepping up to the yeah. big leagues. There's a feeling that the thick of it's been this really culty thing that's like a really that's the cutting edge. It's the amazing new thing everyone's talking about, and it goes to a more mainstream channel. And they that coincides, I think, with Rebecca Front being yeah. cast as Nicola Murray in it. Get me um, Nicola Murray. Yeah, if she says no, well, I don't know, the only other candidate's my left bollock with a fucking smiley face drawn on it. And she comes in, she's this centre, she's very, very... Well, everyone loves Rebecca Front. So you put her in this thing and she arrives and she's in this lovely sort of floral dress and her first meeting with everyone, with Ollie and Glenn, she shakes their hands and she's all smiles and you go, that's Rebecca Front, she's all soft and lovely, she's in things, she's brilliant. Ladies and gentlemen, um, may I introduce the new Secretary of State for Hello. the Department of Social Affairs oh, and Citizenship, Nicola Murray. Oh, Hello, and Nicola. Lovely to meet Hello. you. Hello, lovely, lovely to meet you. Hello, hi. Hello, I'm Glenn Cullen. Hello, Ken. Hi, lovely to meet you. And then slowly, yeah. <laughs> the moment she goes into a private office, you see the real her, and she's frightened and angry and all those things. Yeah. And it's a brilliant, brilliant performance and oh, a brilliant it's... bit of writing that you see all these sides of her. She's her public face is the Rebecca Front we know. Yeah. And you're going to slowly see more and more of her under pressure. Yes, I know. They just they frog march me into it. I didn't know. I had no idea. James, be fair. I did. I've, I've left seven fucking messages for you. Your secretary or whoever is useless. I don't think the school thing's going to be a problem. It's not going to be a problem because they'll have vetted me at number ten, and obviously nobody's soiled themselves or shot me. Okay. Great. Well, I'll, I'll take your warm congratulations as implied. Fucking. And you're right, it's almost like she has, like a Shakespeare play, mapped out her dramatic fall. Yeah. She just, it's so gradual and you just see her slowly, completely break. And I really yeah. love, there's the moment where she is absolutely desperate to leave and in the episode where um, her daughter's a bully at school and it's all in the papers and she's begging Malcolm that she can resign and he makes her stay. And then in this episode, it's uh, the episode where she's forced to resign by Malcolm Tucker, she's desperate to stay and she's forced to leave and it's just this complete, like, journey that you see is like a, almost like a Greek tragedy that yeah. she goes on. Yeah, it's yeah. so... It's, it's really clear what she wants and what everyone wants. Does it without any voiceover, without any internal monologue, which is often the tricks in sitcoms yeah. to tell you what people want. You can see what everyone wants and it comes out through the dialogue and the performances... And they're completely, all of them, no matter who they are, probably the exception of Malcolm Tucker, they're all completely at the mercy of each other. They don't yeah. get to get what they want. They, they cannot just decide to go somewhere and go there. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's incredibly empathetic about the impossibility of getting anything done. Yeah, totally. And really demystifying about, which I think I would normally find a problem because you think actually politicians should be held to account and they should be better, but it's really demystifying about the structures are set up for them to fail. Yeah. There is just They are just <laughs> individuals within something much, much bigger than them that they are just... Always, always, it's the faulty towers. Everything's an obstacle that they are, that's counter to what they are good at. What you're telling me is that basically I'm going to be a woman with a computer and some pens. Well, it's just a pen budget. <laughs> I mean, I have about as much real power as those twats who sit either side of Alan Sugar. Well, yes. It's really interesting when you first meet her as well, the way she views herself, and then suddenly she's completely put out in front of the press and in front yeah. of public scrutiny and the way that she's perceived. In front of the words, I am Ben. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's set up for her to find. She turns up and she says something. What I love is when, if you watch the, the, the episode where she's first introduced, she comes out and she says, what I really want to do is social mobility. <laughs> yeah. And you go, no one can argue that's a good thing. And immediately, Glenn or Ollie just says, 
Well, that costs money. We haven't got any money, so forget that. <laughs> well, fire up the turbochargers, set the phases to equality. <laughs> uh, it's Murray time. Uh, the thing is, and uh, Ollie, please correct me here if I'm wrong. Um, I will certainly do that. Social mobility, uh, making people richer, costs money. Yes, and um, we, we don't have any of that, really. Right. I mean, uh, if you speak to Nick at the Treasury, he will tell you the same, only with his annoying lisp. Well, the whole reason she came here <laughs> has been got rid of in the first exchange. Well, we won't be doing that. And then you go, well, what are you here for? <laughs> and she's just trapped. It's like, there's a great moment, in, I think, in that first episode where Malcolm Tucker wants her to get in a lift. And she goes, I can't get in a lift because I'm claustrophobic. And, and he says, what, what's wrong with it? And she says, it's the feeling of not being able to get out. And it's this brilliant metaphor for that's Aww. what... She strapped herself into the roller coaster. She's on the waltzer with the guy spinning yeah. it. Yeah. The point is, she can't get out. So when you get to the episode you're talking about, she's on the yeah. she's forced to resign, she's on a train. Oh, it's a God, bottle episode. So she can't get out. It is her oh, worst that, nightmare. And actually, that is really stressful to watch. Rebecca Frum is fucking brilliant in those scenes where she desperately wants to get yeah. off this moving vehicle yeah. that she cannot get yeah. off. And even things like there's that moment where she says that she's going for a celebratory weed. <laughs> and Miles Strip, it's a great shot where Miles Strip sat next to her and he just has his arms folded and he physically doesn't move as she stands up yeah. and tries to get out yeah, and again yeah, it's that yeah. sort of being completely trapped and eventually he gets up but she has to sort of and even when she's walking to try and get out of this situation she's having to say hello hello to everyone that she passes well, she's, she's the leader she's, of the opposition she's always in a situation where she's surrounded by people who and this is so well written and so well performed and so well planned everyone around her is sort of on side and not on side she's never trapped with friends She's yeah. always there, even if they're being friendly. So basically her, her assistant is hostile to her. So even the person who's supposed to help her is not helping her. Her guy turns up, it's Miles Jupp, as the most annoying man in the world. <laughs> oh, God. Duggan of all people. John, nice to see you again. All abroad, the Hogwarts Express for Nicola Potter and the prisoner of Asker Bradford. <laughs> I come bearing broadcast journalists. Sounds almost sexual, doesn't it? <laughs> and then she sat next to the two people from Sky who he's brought with him, who then won't leave and are filming her. So oh, everything no. around her, even the people who are supposed to be there with her to help her, are as bad as the opposition, as bad as the most angry voter. Yeah. She's always surrounded by people who are not helping. Yeah. I really love her relationship with her person, Helen, the, yeah. her second, what's she called? Her number two, she calls her. She's the yeah. new Ollie. The new Ollie. This is uh, Helen, my number two. Oh, unexpected item in bagging area. I was expecting something more Ollie-shaped. I'm JD, recently divorced. Helen is so rude to her and really direct to her, but then there's that moment right at the beginning where Nicola Murray has her head on a table and is sort of doing deep <laughs> breathing. <laughs> <laughs> talking about how she wants to end it all. And Helen I've said... I've had a stroke. <laughs> I've had a stroke. Well, oh, I no, should no. be so lucky. Yeah. Um, and Helen's really rude to her, but then as Malcolm Tucker comes to the door, she goes, can you give her a moment? She's meditating. And it's that sort of weird thing that I think happens in politics where there's a lot of loyalty and protectiveness, yeah. but then actually not much kindness or empathy when it comes to, you know, just having a conversation with each other. Is that why you're not answering your phone? No, I'm finding it actually quite comforting. I'll be able to bring you a shot glass and some bleach. Hey, only my kids are allowed to talk to me like that. And my husband. Don't forget you're on a train to Bradford in a couple of hours. Can you try to arrange for me to be underneath it? I look forward to your lovely train journey together. I look forward to you fucking off, actually. Thanks very much. Great. It's always had good female characters, isn't it? Joe Scanlon's amazing in it, things. But this was this great thing of saying, what if you put someone in the middle of it who, because of the baggage Rebecca Front brings with her and actually who she is as a performer you're immediately empathetic to her but that feminine energy in there yeah. of going well this is someone who is very very loudly a mother and family person and, and 
whatever you think about whether they should or not, her family priorities become an issue in a way that you probably didn't question about the men. Yeah, Because it's sure. a very big beast, masculine, testosterone, competitive environment where the men are supposed to screw their families in a kind of 60s, 70s, mad many kind of way. Yeah. But you put a woman in the middle of it and you ask different questions. Yeah, for, for sure. For good or for, for, for bad. And it's just great watching what that world asks of her is immediately unreasonable and awful. And it makes it much more... That message it's always trying to say, which is these are just people and we're asking something absolutely impossible of them. Mm. It's a very empathetic show for something so brutal and savage. It says, would anyone want to do this? I am sorry. I really thought I could be Prime Minister. Did you? Yes, didn't you? Yes, of course. Can you ring James, actually? Because he'll just be all smug on the phone and then I'm going to end up asking for a divorce and I... That's exactly what he fucking well wants me to do. And I just know I'm going to end up with the fucking kids. You're so right. And you see her language literally change throughout the series. Of yeah. At the beginning, like you say, she comes in and she's like, I'm interested in social mobility. And then she finds herself having to match, particularly Malcolm. She matches him, but she can't quite do it, which is just <laughs> beautiful. Where she tries to yeah. mirror that really like flamboyant, really sweary language in this way that just doesn't suit her demeanour. Or... And so, that, like you say, the person she is in that find the episode where she's resigning is a very different person to the person she, she is when you meet her in she's swearing with enormous energy and she's yeah. tra- you see her like cornered she's always by the toilet or so she's stuck places she's yeah. claustrophobically sort of penned in in but, the well, vestibule well, she's like vestibule. yelling well, she's yelling and shouting <laughs> and, and she's got Tucker's swearing by then she's, yeah. she's picked this all up and, but, and then, but they don't do it in a cheap way they don't sort of say well she's all soft and maternal because there's that great line she says I really won't my husband will leave me and he'll leave me with the fucking kids yeah. <laughs> and you go brilliant so she's not like she's oh I wish I were at home she's a proper politician she's serious yeah. she's, she's given up her life to come and do this and they still won't let her there is yeah. that one lovely moment as well isn't there where you find out the limits of Malcolm Tucker's bile when she says... I mean, what, what do I expect next? Am I going to get spat out in the street by Michael Palin? That's highly unlikely. He's really a very, very nice man. Someone <laughs> Malcolm Tucker likes. He's of course, it's Palin. Michael Palin. It's a law of physics that you have to like Michael Palin, isn't it? That's it's amazing. It's great to find out that's where, that's, where, that's where he stops. He draws a line at Michael that's Palin. That's amazing. <laughs> Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. But that's such a brilliant moment as well, again, of, of Greek tragedy where Malcolm Tucker at the beginning of the episode orders the flowers for Nicola Murray that she will receive at the end of the episode that say, I'm sorry, you had to go. Yeah, you're a waste of skin or whatever he yeah. is. The insult is that he chooses. Uh, yeah, so he, he literally orders the flowers. They are out for delivery. So you know that by the end she's going to have resigned and then this the sort of trick that he does is force her into launching an inquiry into Mr Tickle who's um <laughs> whose name she cannot say which again is just an amazing sort of insight that you as the audience feel so um included because you see her struggle with being able to pronounce his real name Mr Tickle because everybody calls him Mr Tickle and then you see her sky interview where she goes Mr T- the missed and loved respected <laughs> man <laughs> she's just completely unable to say it um, and she's sort of forced into launching this inquiry that you then find out is going to be essentially an inquiry into herself. And it yeah. all happens because she's in that situation that she's unable to get out of, of being on a train to Bradford in the vestibule between two carriages. And the character of Ben, has Ben Swain, has just resigned and she needs something to... Dist- it's this very, like, time-pressured, mm. this needs to happen now, this needs to happen now, and you just see her go, fine, fine, I'll do it fuck you, I think is how she kind of <laughs> says it. They build up this incredible layer of everything falls against each other like a, like a farce. Yeah. But unlike most television farces where the farce is domestic and it's about romance or infidelity or sort of opening cupboards and finding people, the farce in thick of it is about things that no one's got any understanding of. It's a level you go, I'm not really following this, it's happening too fast, but everyone within it is so convinced that this thing is a disaster, that the stakes are so clear, yeah. this is the end of my career. Everyone's career is a hair's breath from failure so that they can all be at this state of hysteria and you follow it and it's got this enormous energy Mm. of disaster is always happening the plates are always falling off the the sticks they're spinning on 
and you don't it happens too fast for you to follow yeah but you kind of accept it because the characters you every time the shot of their eyes comes onto the screen you go oh my god they're really frightened and mm. weirdly that energy carries you through and it's it's a farce that's been precision tooled but sold entirely through the actors and how they're reacting to it rather than you as a person at home understanding every repercussion mm. Mm. and the and the fact that you don't understand it i think is really vital because that is what it the politics yeah it's like the sort of nonsense of it the the policy that she's just launched that she's trying to publicize on the train on the interview to sky the here to here we it's are such here an annoying to here. Mm. But, but it's, it's better than we're all ears isn't it? <laughs> but i love with we're all ears with the capital all yeah. implying we are all literally ears. <laughs> i think that's so good that kind of nonsense government policy that's wheeled out where they try and do something a bit edgy and cool we're here to hear about hearing and going round and ollie describes it as being told um, that you they hate you in lots of different accents. <laughs> I hate you, I hate you, I hate you in lots of different accents. And I think it's just so recognisable as something that, like you say, you don't quite understand, but you see a slogan or, or... It has a truth to it. It's amazingly good at saying two things. One is, this is, I bet, what politics is like. And I think Martin Sixsmith was a consultant on it. It has, has yeah. that authenticity yeah. that Yes Minister had. Someone's been inside this and, and said, oh, it is just like this. Yeah. And anyone we've ever spoken to from inside politics said, oh, it's exactly like yes, this. Yes, yes. Well, a friend of ours, sure. an old publicist of ours, ended up working for Number 10, and she ended up at a pub with Justin Edwards, who plays Ben Swain. And she was so starstruck... Because it's Ben Swain. I went, oh, he's a major star if you work in, in number 10. He's the most famous comedy man oh, in the world. Wow. She was completely starstruck <laughs> by him, which is really charming. Because Justin was going, oh, my God, he's the biggest fan I've ever had. <laughs> they loved this. Hence, Omnishambles going from this straight into actual Ed Miliband saying. Oh, yeah. Yes. They all watched this. But at the same time as it being very an industry thing, in the same way as if you work in the media, I'm Alan Partridge, has an extra level of fun. Uh, yeah. It's about every office. Whoever the lead character is, whether it's Hugh Abbott or it's, or it's Nicola Murray, they're in the middle. There's someone below them. They've got an assistant. They've got people who are incompetent, who are ruining everything for them. And there's someone above them, which is Malcolm Tucker, who's basically like a sitcom boss. He's CJ. He's Sir. Yeah. He's the baddie. And that's how Blackadder works. Blackadder's in the middle. There's Queenie above him and there's the, yeah. the minions below. It's a classic sitcom set up that the lead character is middle and everyone in their work feels like they're in the middle. They've been let down by the people below and stabbed in the back by the people above. We all feel like that all the time. So having someone like Nicola Murray in the middle of it and an actress as brilliant as Rebecca Front makes you go, that's me. I feel like yeah, that. that's what it is. She's in the middle. or She feels to be in the middle, but yeah. actually the outside world all thinks that she's the person in it, charge yes. and holding her responsible for everything. We all feel like that. I think Jason yeah. and I said ages ago, one of the greatest, if you, if you like good witty sitcoms, the best setups are really clever people trapped. <laughs> Whether it's the, the, the surgeons in MASH or Scrubs, they're clever yeah. and they're stuck in a shit job. Clever because they can be witty, and no one's dumb. There's no, there's no dumb characters in this. They're all yeah. really bright, and got, they've got they're as clever as the writers. They've got as many jokes in them. So Thirty Rock's got that. Everyone in that is, is witty and funny. They're all comedy yeah. people. Uh, it makes for a really good sitcom if everyone is is verbally funny and they're trapped in situations where they look like idiots. Nicola, I can't find Benjamin Glutton anywhere. The massive fuck's gone to ground somehow. Nobody's felt the aftershocks. Listen, Malcolm, it's fine. We've sorted it. We've averted Benageddon. No, 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 no. I know about the deal, but he's still resigning. You sure? 
And while, while we're on verbal, before we do these recordings, um, we all watch the thing, and Joel and I both make notes. The guests sometimes make notes, sometimes they don't. My notes for this are, with one exception, all just quotations. I, oh, I could wow. just, I could, that thing we say at the front where we just quote bits of it and giggles yeah. and we're yeah. finished. I could do that for the rest of the fucking afternoon. I really could because it's just <laughs> so quotable. It's I absurdly good, this script. Sean Gray, Simon Blackwell, and Tony Roach wrote this episode yeah. with a bit of help from Ian Martin, Will Smith, and Roger Drew. God, the minds there, those minds. Yeah. But it's a pile of people. What this is the product of is a very busy, very dense writer's room and a very, very busy, very dense cast. So everyone... I wrote this down as a note and said, everyone is working really hard. Yep. So by the time you get to watch it, it has been layer upon layer upon layer upon layer has been added. And the strange thing about the thick of it, what, what everyone noticed about the thick of it when it first came out is it was loose. There was, mm. oh, bits of it are improvised, which is not strictly true. There's a really rigid script. And then they go a bit off script for a little bit and then come back to the script. So we, there, there's opportunity for looseness from the cast. And it's shot, handheld, very, very loose. So everyone went, oh, it's really loose. But it's not loose. It's no. incredibly tight. Yeah, so within that the structuring in this yeah. episode in particular is fucking... Oh it's a masterpiece. It's worked, it's it's worked out like perfect. a Swiss watch. It's yeah. so precise. And the editing is so fast. By about 12 minutes into this, you can always pause thick of it and go, is this nearly finishing? Because you've had half an hour's <laughs> yeah. worth of action. It's edited so fast. It's so fast. And there's so many sort of parallel stories that you're following. Yeah. Ollie and his hospital, um, Malcolm <laughs> running around. <laughs> the, it is the nearly train. Malcolm's first line is that describing Ollie and just saying, yeah, he looks like a Quentin Book. <laughs> Can we just applaud this? Because this show has got, it's very, you say it's very realistic and it feels very authentic, but it has completely, it is not realistic because people don't talk this fast. Yeah, you're don't right, think this fast. You're right. This is written like a Charlie Brooker monologue or a Frankie yeah. Boyle column. It is every single, they look like a b -b 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 haunted pencil. Every one of those is <laughs> yeah. in there and thrown away because they've decided yep. at the beginning that because these are really clever people because yeah. they're supposed to be in politics and it's written by really clever people they will have nailed each other What have you got for me, Professor Brian Cork? Ben Smallbaldin Nicholas offered him Shadow Chancellor he's not resigning Got face in the diamond eyes the dopey fucking bollard Right, how are you getting on with the old man from up? Even if it's just miles up saying all aboard the Hogwarts Express they've all got pop culture yeah, references yeah, at their fingers Yeah, this series four is the one that's got Peter Capaldi's astonishing Star Wars riff that David Quantic wrote where he just dismisses that joke where he just dismisses what's that thing you like? What's that film that you love? What film? The one about the fucking hairdress the space hairdress and the cowboy the guy's he's got a tinfoil pal and a pedal bin his father's a robot and he's fucking fucked his sister Lego they're all made of fucking Lego Star Wars that's the one right that's, that's a trick, that, because Malcolm Tucker has got pop culture references at his fingers all the time. He knows exactly what Star Wars is. He's <laughs> yep. just trying to be rude to Ollie. It's brilliant. <laughs> oh, yeah, and they, they, they play jokes with it where people are out of touch with popular culture. And there's a great bit where Glenn keeps saying, he's in there seeing uh, Bravo 2-0. <laughs> Bravo 2-0? Uh, not Bravo. Juliet, Juliet Bravo. The, who's the woman policeman? Uh, and, and Ollie goes, how old are you? Because uh, he's, he's not only got the reference wrong, but it was one that no one would get anymore anyway. And it's just that the currency is the but currency of insults. But how much does that also show the way the characters are so <laughs> clear that 
that everybody's cultural references are not arbitrary, but yeah. they are specific to them. Yep. You know, like the All Aboard, the Hogwarts Express yes. is so yes. his character. Duggan is a monster. I remember watching this episode go out and going, they fa- I couldn't believe they could find another monster. And John Duggan, <laughs> the press yeah. guy, Miles Jupp plays. J.D., he's rebranded. He, Everything <laughs> about him is awful, even down to the fact that he's obviously like a nerd. This show is so brilliantly rude to its writers and its audience <laughs> by saying, you're interested in this shit. <laughs> and you know that Will Smith and Roger Drew and Simon Black are throwing these references in from their lives and going, I hate me for knowing, <laughs> for being able to do the hairless Hagrid joke. I hate myself for it. And the audience goes, oh, God, the is that shit that I know? Hagrid, the <laughs> so hairless Hagrid. Is so, but it's so <laughs> thrown away. Like that you say, everything is... Yeah. <laughs> It's so fast, it's so thrown away yeah. that, like you say, you don't have time to keep up with the the joke-to-time ratio. Also, so actually, fast. Miles as well. It's not really a typical Miles performance, is it, this? Because, first of all, he's playing an absolute fucking snake. <laughs> um, there's a brilliant moment where he watches... Helen, oh uh, Nicholas' assistant, walk up the train, and he basically he leans right round the the side of his seat because he's you know it's not in, it's not on screen, but you know he's watching her ass. God, you're shocking. Bites his lip. He oh. bites his lip in the most. Is so accurate and cringe. It's Helen, so funny. who's played by Rebecca Gethings, isn't yeah. it? It's just brilliant at just holding his stare and you can see you can, all this contempt behind her eyes. Yeah. <laughs> What's great about him is you think everyone else is sort of a bit corrupt and awful and then he <laughs> comes in. And all the things you were saying about uh, people who are quite intelligent feeling trapped and knowing they're trapped, he thinks he's in control of the yes. situations, which is why the moment when Nicola Murray and Helen run off of the train <laughs> and the train pulls away, you just see Mal Jupp's face at the window completely unable to process what is happening. Because <laughs> that's, that's an amazing sequence as well, isn't it? Where oh they just run they go, go, up go, the go. platform and up the ramps while trying it, while making calls, both of them, trying yeah. to get support for Nicola Murray, just to go across and then back down to the other platform to get the train back to London. Yeah. Yeah. Go, 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 go. Kate, hi. Can I count on your support? Sorry, I am a bit out of breath. It's just because I'm running up a ramp, that's all. No, no, not, not with a view to jumping off. <laughs> Becky Martin directed that fucking brilliantly. She's oh, a brilliant director, isn't she? And it's so such a funny good. bit of... It's a bit of physical farce yeah. Yeah. in the middle of this super-fucking-smart programme. Yeah, but it's that one moment of escape of managing to get off yeah. of the moving train. Yes. <laughs> it's out of the vestibule. It sort of symbolises so much, and then they have to get on the next train to go all the way back. <laughs> Trapped again. Yeah. There are so many scenes where, like, Peter Capaldi will drag you into a cupboard to sort of give yeah. you a bollocking or, or, or sort of say something in confidence. And you're never out of that cupboard. You're always trapped in there. Yeah. And, and the idea of being trapped with this toxic monster mm-hmm. of Malcolm Tucker, who also is the only person very often who's right, which they probably borrowed a little bit from Humphrey Appleby in Yes Minister. But he's just awful, and they're trapped with him. <laughs> They've agreed yeah. to get on the roller coaster with yeah. a shark, and yeah. it's horrible. Again, it's so Shakespearean or like a yeah. Greek yeah. play, the very final episode when they're doing the inquiry, and he does that speech about, I am you and you are me. You know, the, you have created me, you've allowed yeah. me to exist within the system, and therefore you get what you're given in a way. You come after me because you can't, you can't arrest a landmass, can you? You can't, you can't cuff a country. Just absolutely, like it's a bit like the Black Adder going over the table yeah, at the end. Yeah, it's this yeah. moment of, oh my God, actually, we're all complicit in this, and we've yes. all been laughing at this, but this is horrendous. You don't like it. Well, you don't like yourself. You don't like your species, and you know what? Neither do I. But how dare you come and lay this at my door? 
How dare you blame me for this? This is all about not being yourself and making the public believe you are someone impossible. Mm. Which is the result of a political class which has given up on morality and simply pursues popularity at all costs. I thought, this is 2012, I think, this, this came out, this series. Yeah, well, the giveaway there was the use of the word vuvuzela in the episode. I went, oh, it's 2012, isn't <laughs> it? There's only there one are. year that happened. But, yeah, it's, it's, a 20, it's 2012, and what's amazing watching it now is, is the nostalgia. It looks so nice. I know. All these people who really believe in politics. <laughs> I know. That, that brilliant Let's thing not, where, this is going to get where, leaked. No, it's true. They hold up a newspaper and it says, Nicola Murray is unelectable. And they go, well, that's it. A newspaper said someone's unelectable. We have to get rid of them as leader. Went, oh, that stopped happening, didn't it? Um, the idea that you could control the public and it, it's the, sowing the seeds yeah. of where we are now. But it feels so that, that now there's a feeling of going because everyone maybe again, like you said, we're all responsible. Maybe because we watched the thick of it and went, ah, oh, I can see through them. They're all dishonest. We got that message from it. And then we went, oh, we don't trust any of them. I'll oh, screw them all. Mm. Whereas the other message it's saying is they're all just you. They're all struggling to do their best. Everyone is. Yeah. Even Malcolm Tucker is struggling to do his best to help these people get their message across. That's what he's trying to do, to protect them from the media and things. And it feels like a period piece in that the relationship between the media and politicians has changed so much to the extent that the Prime Minister doesn't go on television anymore to tell you what he wants, that that, yeah. that, that power structure has changed. But still, the central message is that maybe the one we have to learn again is that they're not all inhuman. They are all Nicola Murray. Mm. And they're all, they all, at their core, probably want to, wanted at some point to do something good. Mm. I am you, and you are me. Are you finished? I'm finished anyway. You didn't finish me. It's also why you couldn't make the thick of it now, because real life is so unbelievably more ridiculous than yes. the show. I love the amount of people who tweet whenever something extreme happens. Best episode of the thick of it ever. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true, it's sort of now the lens view. I definitely do this. I view politics through the lens of going, well, I have a bit of an insight into what's actually yeah. happening behind closed doors. And, <laughs> yeah. and when things happen, you think, God, this is so structured like a sitcom. Is it, is it like the thing where people said they stopped making sitcoms because reality TV and fly on the wall things had got so popular and people were getting their comedy, their character comedy from <laughs> Gogglebox or from Big Brother? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it now we're getting our political comedy from actual politics? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't need this anymore. And I look forward to spending more time with my husband, James, and with my children, Ben, Katie. And here he is, the anointed one. Oh. Please, please, I'm not Christ. He was quite a scruffy man. I think Nicholas just finishing herself off here. Thank you very much. Thank you. And you just think, God, he has a real sense of humour about this whole thing, that he's ordering flowers and he's ordering a balloon to say, this is inevitable and I have total control. Yeah. It's just a kind of control I wish I had in my own personal life. You sort of envy... Yeah, even though he is supposed to be this monster and a hate figure, everyone loves him and loves that character because I suppose we all want those superpowers. Yeah. That sense of... He's, he's always in a drone above everything, seeing the shape of things and manipulating them in a way that is impossible. Was sort of legendarily the, the, the way that Labour looked at Alistair Campbell, that he was the only one who was outside the trenches in a balloon, being able to see what the, how the battle was going below. Mm. Um, which obviously, again, we know really those people are just people as well. Mm. That the insistence that Dominic Cummings is some kind of strategic genius 
is ruined by every time something goes wrong. Um, but everyone <laughs> believes in every party they've got one of these Malcolm yeah, Tucker's. Yeah, you're right. Maybe this helped build the idea that what you needed to get things done wasn't elected politicians and parliament on side. You just needed one really good spin Peter doctor. Capaldi guy who yeah. would come in and fix everything for you. I want one of those for my life, Peter Capaldi, to just come <laughs> in and sort it out. But you're right, it is magic powers because there's also that bit where Ben Swain, they agreed to give him Chancellor of the Exchequer, which yeah. is just, again, really funny. Well, <laughs> Look, at the moment, I hold all the cards, including the card that tells you how to play. So, so it's over. Fat lady's singing. No, she's not. The fat man from the Gorkin Pyramid is talking. This is Tiger by the Tail Time, and I'm loving it, loving it, loving it. Oh, in that case, you leave me no option, Ben. I'm going to have to say yes. Oh, chumba, fucking wumba. <laughs> but then at the end, Malcolm Tucker needs to find a way of stopping that from happening. And actually, the way in which he stops it isn't his kind of genius manipulation, but chance, which is that he was also in the thread of emails that said yeah. he agreed to the policy that eventually led to Mr. Tickell's suicide. And so, but you, I found myself watching that and going, great, it's all perfectly rounded up. Yeah. And I was quite pleased. And then I thought, that's really bad, isn't it, that this man has is now having to li suddenly live do a resignation speech where he says he will not be coming back to the front benches. And I'm really delighted that it's there's been this kind of narrative perfect <laughs> summing up of things. You Poor just think, guy. God, I've bought into this culture. I've bought into this kind of game of it rather than viewing it as... You know, I think it's really interesting that they get a train to Bradford. It's never quite clear what they're going to Bradford for. And then they never make it to Bradford. Yeah. They get straight on the train back to London. And yeah. the actual policies are always kind of... The game Secondary. of Westminster is, is the most important thing. I remember noticing this when that, that when Brexit was going on for ages, uh, it was really hard to talk to friends in the news, and they said it's really hard to do because it's the same story every day. Nothing's moved on. It's just, it stayed static for ages. We found this. We were, we wrote a thing for Charlie, I think, for Philomena Kunk on Brexit, and then the series got delayed by six months, and it went out in the paper six months later than we'd written it. And everyone went, oh, you've really nailed how it is this week. And we went, literally, <laughs> right, that six months ago. Nothing's happened. Wow. And the moment that the press caught fire with covering Brexit was the moment it became a story about Westminster. Westminster and about Boris Johnson yeah. and about the parties. It's and gossip, the, yeah. Yeah, and this is, a, this is a, a, a show that says that the real business is happening on College Green, that, that the country is over there somewhere. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, the thick of it was very good at saying politics is just made up of people, mm. um, which is a very human thing. And actually, I think maybe, maybe because those people were shown up to be fallible led to people getting quite cynical about politics, um, probably in a way they didn't intend. Because it's full of empathy. You watch Ben Swain having to... Having to Resign mm. live and being ambushed with his own resignation. Lovely performance by oh Justin, God, isn't it? so good! But they've all got they've got this empathy for everybody because I think, especially now, we're all weirdly in a situation where we have to manage our public faces because of Twitter and things. That's true. We're all there's an email chain with us condemning the wrong thing in all our. A WhatsApp closets. group ready to be leaked for yeah. sure. Yeah. We're all for risking sure. that. So maybe, maybe this was preparing us for not just politics, but our lives. You're right, because it used to be a big deal when like nudes got leaked. Do you remember yeah. when that used to yeah. be a big deal? Now everybody has nudes, so it's no longer a big deal. But it's also, I really, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said, America have the West Wing and Britain have the thick of it. Yes. And that, for me, mm. is a really hopeful thing, which is that we don't idealise yes. our politicians' And that's a great point. I, yeah, that's yeah true. it's really interesting how we, our kind of instinct as human beings is to be really cynical yeah. as British people, to be really cynical and to sort of see the reality of things, which is partly what I think triggered Brexit is a lot of people thinking, oh, that'd be kind of fun. If that, yeah. You know, wouldn't that? We like to mess the status 
quo up. I remember, and, I was saying that so if there had been a third option on the thing to kick the Prime Minister out of a window, that would yeah, have won. Yeah, for sure. It's a, the boat-em at boat face yeah. just happens to have a lot more consequences. Don't give us the big red button. Yeah. We will push the big red button. But I totally get it. I totally empathise with my friends who voted Brexit and saw it as an anti-establishment yeah. vote. Because if you look at the thick of it and what we're allowing to continue to happen, that the only power of disrupting the status quo is this thing that, to be fair to the people who voted Brexit, has successfully really yeah. disrupted the way that politics... I mean, not necessarily for the good. It shattered the parties, it shattered all their, their certainties, yeah. it's broken them apart. It's, uh, uh, someone said it was like fracking. Yeah. And the problem at the moment is it's destabilised everything, which yeah. is the thing. But all that energy has been released. The play, the play Enron um, uses a really good analogy for the economy and the way that the the collapse of the banks happened is they say imagine the economy is like a plane and the only way that plane is flying is by everyone on the plane believing that it can yeah. and if you suddenly stop believing it and the plane will crash and I think that's a bit similar to Westminster where yeah. we all just sort of go well that's the system and like you say it's a system that's been created by people and therefore can completely be disrupted by people and I don't think Brexit is the correct way to disrupt it but it shows that the success that people coming together and um, sort of rebelling against the status quo can have. It's just interesting whenever we rebel against the status quo, it always seems to be the status quo, I just said. <laughs> You're an upstart quo. Oh, right? I know, I'm always subliminally advertising. <laughs> Tickets are on sale, guys. Um, why, why, whenever we disrupt the status quo, do we always, um, ironically, by calling it that, I'm disrupting the status quo? Yeah, uh, you've literally I've, done it. I've taken it yeah. too far. Um, <laughs> why is it that whenever we disrupt the status quo, we always go to the right, like with Trump and with Brexit? Why is it? Why do we do that? Why don't we ever disrupt it in a more yeah, radical true. left way? What well, happened in, in 1948? That, that's that really odd thing where something happened that was so traumatic and the country was so on its knees after the Second World War that everyone went, OK, we'll go to the left and we'll, we'll socialise. It actually happened in, in America after the Great Depression with, with New Deal and things. They said, this is such a bad state, we need to all pull together and do things. So I think we can go both ways. So we ways. just need to go to war and or have, a, have a Great, great Depression. Well, those oh, two things bo- are quite likely. <laughs> <laughs> I can see them being inevitable things coming up. So That'll help. Fingers crossed. <laughs> a big admirer of Rebecca Front as a performer was she a hero of yours yes she is amazing and I think it is a real watching it is also just a real accidental comedy education in how Mm. to deliver I just think the way that she finds the absolute truth for example when she's having the sort of panic on the train I don't know what it is but there is something in it that is allowing you to laugh at it and while also being truthful and I always try and intellectualize and make academic what that actual thing is and it's completely you can't name it or say it but there is just a small difference that stops her performance from being a drama and makes it a comedy there's like an essence yeah so a woman having a breakdown on a train yeah can be incredibly upsetting to watch and you feel for or you, you there's something in her that allows you to laugh at it and makes that it is safe yeah makes it safe and there's something I don't know what it is but I've gone right okay and sort of tried to take that on in the way that I then perform comedy which is utter truth but allowing people to know that this is safe to laugh at oh, I'm gonna kill Ben Swain I'm gonna fucking I'm fucking kill Ben Swain I'm gonna get some fucking giant Yorkie and ram it down your Gizzard. Okay. Are we there? It's good to let it out. 
once I get out in the air, I'll be fine. So we're going to do a ring round. I'm going to leave Mary to you because she's a bit HRT-ish. We talked about this in the series, actually, because we talked about Rebecca Front with regard to Knowing Me, Knowing You with Alan Partridge, which <laughs> is a sketch show yeah. with an audience. And she's giving a properly authentic performance in that, but at a sketch character level. So it's honest and true, but not realistic. Mm. Yeah. And there's something in there, I think maybe it's sketch training or something that gives her ability to just not make it... You see it sometimes when they cast actors in sitcoms and they give an actor's performance and it means that the farce becomes traumatic. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I don't want to see that person... I'm thinking of for, and Motherland, I think, because there's lots of actors in there and going, I really love Diane Morgan in Motherland because she's clearly just having fun. Yeah. And I really worry for the actors <laughs> in it because it looks like they're really having yeah. trouble. Yeah, <laughs> And it happens all the time because there's such a fad at the moment. Fad's maybe not the right word, but there's such a fad at the moment for comedy dramas. Yeah. Mm. And... and that is the hardest possible thing to do, where it is both. Yeah. Where you and and I find it all the time. I end up watching things like what was the sitcom that I watched recently? I think it was Rev, where I just found myself really upset, <laughs> <laughs> and it's so down to. And you know the comedy performance in that are amazing. Yeah. But there is such a fine balance, and I think Rebecca Friend's character in the thick of it has the potential to just be incredibly traumatic to watch. Yeah. But there's something about her performance that allows you to go, she's okay. But that's a things- really good observation. That. I'd sort of, I think I'd arrived somewhere near there, but I, there was no way I'd have arrived at actually. It's actually to do with the fact that, it's that you're you're allowing this to be a comic performance, even yeah. though this is incredibly stressful. Yeah. What's going well, on. The, the, the whole show is very serious, and it's about government and things. But all of it, because it's not real, it's too fast. There, it's not realistic. These people would have all these comparisons and metaphors and similes to hand. Yeah, you're immediately cued in that this is faster than real life. It's not real. It's heightened, and it's all the authenticity, all the shaky camera and things mm. is. Actually, it's so extreme that you're going, oh, it's not really happening. It's actually quite a nice yeah. way of saying because it's so fast and so witty. Yeah. And I think it's an undervalued skill to be able to do comic performances realistically. Yeah. Because I've been watching Raised by Wolves and Becca Staten's performance in that <gasps> is oh. the perfectly mm. judged thing of going, yeah. that's too big for drama. Yeah. But yeah. it's totally convincing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. She's amazing. But she's, she's brilliant yeah. at judging those, like, like Rebecca Front is. But the, the Big di- or Becca. <laughs> Bex and Bex. Yep. The, but the difference with Rebecca Front is she goes emotionally to incredibly dark places. Like yes. at the beginning when she's literally got her head on the table saying that she wished she'd had a stroke. <laughs> and and the thing where she's physically having a panic attack on that yeah. train, she's hyperventilating on that train. And when, she, when she's on the train back and she's snapping at Helen and then she goes, I just need to have a stare and Helen goes go on then have a stare and she just stares intensely out the window she is emotionally in an incredibly dark place okay while we're on our way back to London maybe we should make a list of the things you know you're for and against start with something simple animals in circuses tell you what why don't you make the little list and shove it up your tight cold ass I just need to stare have a good stare but it is so funny the only alternative person I think who's gone that low that I can think of is Olivia Colman in Peep Show yeah and I remember David talking about when she there's the scene when she's lying on the toilet floor and she's really drunk and she's got makeup all over her face and he said he didn't know that's how she was going to do it and then he came round the corner of the door and she just turned around completely sobbing having a complete emotional breakdown and was like oh, I hate you. whatever it is that she says I hate you and the fact that she went to such a dark place is what made it yeah. so funny <laughs> it's not even to do with exaggeration. You'd think the lazy person would say, make it really big. 
Yeah. But the, the thing you're talking about, not only with Olivia Coleman, who basically within a couple of years is going to be deploying her ability to cry on cue <laughs> for completely different reasons, yeah, yeah. with a completely different result. Yeah. It's to do with what when Rebecca Front's having a stare out of the window. <laughs> That's incredibly funny, but it's basically Bob Hoskins at the end of the long Good Friday. You're just reading yeah. the disaster in her eyes. Yeah. Her eyes are amazing, but oh, yeah. and so the, good. actually everyone in there, you're reading inner life into everybody, and all mm. these characters are really, and that is to do with great performance and brilliant writing. They've really thought about it mm, for sure. I think this is probably the 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 best performance I've ever seen Rebecca from give. I'm trying to think if there is anything wow. else that she's done that compares to it. I don't think there is. I mean, she's so convincing in everything that she does anyway, but she's just... There's something about this, yeah. especially this episode, where her world is fucking falling mm. apart, you know? Yeah. And well, that's drama. But that's drama. But just, What's great is that it's not drama. It is totally comedy. Yeah. It's absolutely a comedy, isn't it? It's not a comedy drama, the thick of it. It's no, a comedy. it's a comedy. It's but that's what I, in terms of admiring her as an actor, I just know the context she'll be on on set of it being a comedy, of she's got very funny lines, to then have the kind of ability and confidence to allow herself to go to incredibly emotionally dark mm. places. She's having to psych herself up in a, re- in a way that you would for drama that's so real that she's feeling everything, that she's going through that panic I just think that's really 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 talented acting and that's definitely something that I have sort of admired and not that I've ever been able to do it to that extent but to take on that level of of drama in comedy and still allow it to be pure comedy is just genius I think. Can we put a pin in the word talent there actually because this (laughs) the just you know we've already named writers and directors and things but the the amount of talent in the thick of it is fucking extraordinary it really is they are the best people of their generation, each other, all the writers, the actors, yeah. they just are the best. This is it's a nice thing to go back to. Now it's nearly all well, it's coming up. We're, we're heading towards it being nearly a decade old, which is terrifying. That's thing. crazy. That puts it in the, the canon of British comedy quite comfortably. And I think it's you used the word when we were talking about it before coming on the masterpiece. It yeah, is a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece. Because yeah. everyone involved, production, shooting, technical, everything. The other thing we got told once about frame store, always credited at the end, said frame store, uh, special post-production effects. And we talked to the guy who does them. I said, what the hell do you do on the thick of it? And he went, we paint crew out. He said they film so fast, there are always guys with cable and booms and things in shot. Frame store, he said it is almost, it almost kills. These are the guys who do Paddington and like Bond films. They go flat out painting the crew out in the background so it looks like this. Everyone is good, isn't it? Incredible, isn't it? Everyone is working. That's good insider knowledge. At the top of their game. And in the middle of it, for this series and for this episode in particular, there's one person who uh, all of it's on their shoulders, and it's Rebecca Front. Mm -hmm. And what to bring Nicola Murray, I think. Only the second comedy character we've had on Rule of Three after the great Gonzo. And I think an honourable, honourable <laughs> <laughs> I heard award. that. I love that she's in good company. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> thank you for bringing Nicola Murray on this wonderful Thanks, Saturday. No, Cheers. thank you.